0: Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 17. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez and Zara by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon And Joram, the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh, the father of Amos, and Amos, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jehoniah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jehoniah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud, and Abiud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So all the generations, from Abraham to David, were 14 generations. And from David to the deportations to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. This is the word of God.
1: Thanks be to God. Yeah. Wow. Hannah, mark it off. Make sure Julie never has to read scripture for the rest of next year. That was absolutely incredible. My mouth just started getting bigger and bigger with incredible fascination and awe. Well done. Well done, good and faithful servant. <laughs> hey, Merry Christmas, everyone. Good morning. Good to see all of you. Please excuse me. My voice is a little bit hoarse. I have three kids who currently right now are walking biohazards and it looks like they've infected their father with what they have been struggling with. My name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. I want to welcome you on this Christmas morning. Hey, we especially want to welcome those of you who are here as our guest. If you're here at the invitation of a friend, a coworker, a sibling, someone close to you, thank you, thank you for taking their invitation. We're so honored to have you as our guest. And if by chance you are here investigating Christianity, I especially want to welcome you today. And just in case you fit that profile, I'd like to share with you a resource that we would like to give to you as our gift. Who doesn't love gifts, right? This is Christmas, after all, this is a time where we give gifts. So one of the gifts that we want to give to you, especially if you're here considering the claims of Jesus, is this little booklet. Right, a book, right? (laughs) A book as a gift. It's one of those gifts that I'm sure many of you are going to be like, oh, thanks, right? Well, it is a book that we feel could be beneficial if you are considering the claims of Jesus. This is a book that is written by a person, very knowledgeable about the Christian faith, and we want to give this as our gift to you as a way for you to help you further go through the process of considering the claims of Jesus, especially in light of this upcoming season, this season that we are in right now of Christmas. We have multiple copies in the back. Please feel free to take as many copies as you want. We would just ask that you would read it, and that if you have any questions, please come on back. Pastor James and I would love to have a conversation over coffee, over a meal, over at our homes, whatever it would take for you to come and hear more about what Jesus is all about. All right, so without further ado, would you mind, please, joining me in bowing your heads in prayer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for this glorious day. Father, every Lord's Day is glorious, but especially today, as it coincides with the day in which we, your people, commemorate the significance of this significant day for your people, where you have sent your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to come and redeem us from our sins. Lord Jesus, we honor you, and we give you praise not only for the fact that you are a God who is so good and so faithful, but the extent in which you exhibit your faithfulness by coming in utter, abject humiliation to incarnate yourself in such a way to where you become vulnerable at the hands of those whom you have created, O oh God, only to end up humiliated and abjected to be a sacrifice. But, oh, through that wonderful sacrifice, we once again can be called children of God. Thank you, Jesus, that you gave us yourself. You have given us the greatest gift that you could ever give us. You have given us your very life. Oh, Lord, we pray that we would honor you as we come to sit at your feet now. Lord, whatever uh, frustrations, whatever anxieties, whatever fears we find ourselves now in, especially during this holiday season, would you banish those thoughts out of our heads And for just this time that we have together, that you would minister to us, that you would speak to us, that you would empower us in such a way that we would have an enduring hope and enduring joy to where we could face whatever it is that we must face once we leave these doors. Oh God, would you be exalted in this place and be lifted up in our hearts so that we could be the men and women you call us to be, a source of blessing in our families, in our workplaces, in our city, and through this entire world. For we ask now all these in your precious holy name. Amen. Amen. So I've been a pastor now for well over 15 years, and one of the common struggles and questions that I get often a lot is the struggle that many Christians have when it comes to the Bible, especially reading the Bible. People have come up to me and said, you know, pastor, I know, you know, we should be reading our Bibles. I know as a Christian, I should be reading this holy book, but I got to be honest to you, sometimes it's just boring. It's really, really boring. I try to read through, like, the book of Leviticus, or I try to read through the book of Numbers, and I'm just, like, out. Some people have said, you know, it really is so boring because sometimes I feel like I'm reading a phone book. I just read a bunch of names that just mean nothing to me. And I would venture to guess that one of the reasons why many people feel this way is because of passages like the one that we just read right now in Matthew's Gospels. I mean, just from a surface reading of it, even though it was well done, Julie... We just come across name upon name upon name, and you're like, what is this? What importance, what significance does this random list of names have in my life? And so as a result, we can easily dismiss it and think it is so irrelevant. But is it true? Are passages like this in Matthew's gospel really that insignificant? Are they really that not important? Are they not relevant for us in our walk with God? Well, if you'd asked the original people who read this work, this book, they would have said absolutely not. This is very, very important, very important because of the fact that even though these 17 verses seem so obscure, so irrelevant, in reality, this list of names, excuse me, this list of names is so profound because it captures a beautiful story that inspires us to have hope, especially now during Christmas Day. And so to help you see this hope, I'd like to draw your attention to three things that we get from this very seemingly boring text. Three things. First, I want to talk about who Jesus came to be who Jesus came to be number two who Jesus came to have and finally we're going to end it with how Jesus did it all who Jesus came to be who Jesus came to have and how Jesus did it all you ready let's jump right in first who Jesus came to be now even if you're here today and you're not a Christian or if you never grew up going to church chances are all of you in here have all been exposed to Christmas am I right You don't have to be a Christian, you don't have to grow up going to church to not be aware of Christmas, especially in a city like New York, right? With the high commercialization of this holiday manifested in Christmas holiday shopping sprees at your favorite department stores or your latest Christmas album from your favorite pop singer sensation. You would have to be in hibernation to not be aware that this is Christmas and this is a time of festivity. Yes, all of you in here know exactly what Christmas is and what it is about. And yet, Even with this awareness, even with this high exposure of Christmas, chances are most of you in here, maybe even Christians in here, really have no idea what Christmas is really all about. One pastor by the name of John MacArthur puts it this way. Can we have this quote up there, please? He says this, the majority of people in the world will miss the next Christmas. But how can that be? How can anyone miss Christmas given the amount of advertising, publicity, and promotion the holiday receives each year? Because, although many celebrate Christmas every year, most don't know what it's about. In spite of all the media promotion of Christmas, the majority of people will miss it because it has become so obscured. End quote. This reference of obscurity that Christmas has come under under the years is, according to MacArthur, one of the reasons why so many people today, why so many Christians today, don't understand the significance of Christmas. And I think he's absolutely right. But here's what's astounding. Believe it or not, this obscurity of Christmas, this unawareness of what the significance of Christmas is all about is not a recent problem. This is not a problem just for our day and age with this high commercialization of Christmas. Believe it or not, even the people who were there who participated in the very first Christmas, the original Christmas, they had no idea what Christmas was really all about. And it wasn't because it was so commercialized back then. Christmas back then was not commercialized at all. But it all had to do with the fact that people back then did not understand who Jesus was, specifically who Jesus came to be. And so as we begin this message, we start off with that question, who exactly did Jesus come to be? Well, Matthew tells us in the very first verse of our passage, let's read it again where he writes this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, according to Matthew. God came into this world as Jesus Christ so that he could be the son of Abraham and the son of David. Now, of course, Matthew is not being literal here because it's scientifically impossible to become the son of two different men, especially if those men are distanced by a thousand years, okay? But here's what you need to know. In the ancient world, the term son didn't just refer to your actual literal son of your generation, okay? In the ancient world, the son could refer to any male descendant of your lineage. Okay? So you could be called a son of somebody if you were the great, 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 great-grandson of that person, as well as being the son of another person if you were the great 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 grandson of that guy. And sure enough, in the lineage of Jesus, if you go back into his ancestry. He is a descendant of both Abraham and David. So in that culture, in that context, Jesus could legitimately be said to be the son of Abraham and the son of David. But therein lies the question. Why Abraham? Why David? Out of all the various ancestors that Matthew could have pointed out into Jesus' genealogy, why does he single out these two men? Well, you have to know a little bit about Abraham and David and their background story in the Bible. You see, even though there are so many other great pickings that Matthew could have highlighted who came from the lineage of Jesus, Aaron, Noah, right? These two men are distinguished in the sense that in the Bible, God made promises to these two men to where it would benefit all of mankind. So let me show you by first taking a look at Abraham. Can we have Genesis chapter 12 up there? Follow along as we read God making a promise to Abraham, he writes this, The Lord had said to Abram, Leave your native country, your relatives, and your father's family, and go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you and make you famous, and you will be a blessing to others. I will bless those who bless you and curse those who treat you with contempt. All the families on earth will be blessed through you. Here God promises Abraham that through him, He is going to bless all of humanity. Now, that word bless is such an obscure word, is it not? I mean, we don't hear it many often in our culture today. It's such an abstract, vague word. What does it exactly mean to be blessed? Well, here's a little exercise to help clarify that for you. Think of the opposite of what it means to be blessed. Do you know what that is? Cursed, right? To be cursed. Do you guys know what it means to be cursed? Oh, yes, you do, right? Because you know very well you have practical examples in your life or in other people's lives that you know where you know exactly what a cursed life is. Maybe it's in the form of your parents getting divorced at a young age. Maybe it's that cousin who got brain cancer is now permanently blind from the age of nine and up. Maybe it's that couple that you know who after a week of getting married, the husband gets into a severe car accident and now he's paralyzed from the neck down. And this wife is now doomed of living her entire married life unable to have kids, and bound to take care of her vegetable husband. Yes, we know exactly what it is to live a cursed life. We know it very well. Think of the opposite of that. That is the blessed life. That is the life of flourishing. That is the life of success. That is the life of happiness. And I don't mean that superficial happiness like when you get when your little kid opening Christmas gifts. I'm talking about real, abundant happiness deep happiness that goes to your core. That's what it means to be blessed, and that is the promise that God made to Abraham, that through him, all of humanity will experience that level of blessing, okay? So that's the promise of Abraham. Let's go now, look at David. Let's look at the promise God made to him in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Can we have it up there, please? Follow along as I read it to you. Now go and say to my servant, David, this is what the Lord of heaven's army has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone. I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And then listen to what he says. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past. Starting from the time I appointed judges to rule my people Israel and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Here God makes another astounding promise to David that through him all of humanity, all of the world is going to experience this thing known as peace. But yet again another word that is so abstract, so vague, what exactly does it mean to have peace? Again, let's choose that exercise. What is the opposite of living a peaceful life? Isn't it a fearful life, right? The opposite of living a peace-filled life is a life filled with fear. And when I say fear, I don't mean those ridiculous phobia fears that you have, like the fear of cucumbers or something, right? I'm talking about that deep, that's a real phobia, by the way. I'm talking about the real deep, Seated fears that keep you up late at night, that pit in your stomach to where you cannot sleep. To where when you look at your kids, it just arouses fear because you're haunted by the consequences that they might have to face because of what you fear. You guys know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm talking about losing your home, the economy going bankrupt, right? Russia being so bold and nuking New York City. I'm talking about those kinds of fears that may not happen but in your mind happens all the time as you're ruminated over and over, right? What is the opposite of that kind of living? That's peace. That's shalom. That sense of settledness. To where instead of being distracted all the time with your fears, you can actually enjoy life. You can actually live life. You can actually engage life because you're not so busy trying to overprotect, overthink, overstrategize your life in such a way to where you can avoid these fears. No, the promise of peace that God gave to David is saying, that is the kind of peace I will make through you. David, okay? Now here's the thing. If you study carefully those two promises in Scripture, you would see that God specifically states that this promise is not going to be directly fulfilled by Abraham and David, but in both instances, God tells both Abe and Dave, respectively, one of your sons will achieve this peace, this blessing. Go back to what I just said earlier in the ancient world, sons did not literally mean your firstborn. Or your first generation children. It can mean any male descendant from your lineage. And so when Matthew says that Jesus has come to be the son of Abraham and the son of David, what is he saying? He's saying Jesus has come to fulfill those promises that God made to Abraham and to David. He came to fulfill the promise that through him... He will be the source of universal blessing. He will be the source of universal peace. He is the one who has come to establish and to fulfill this promise to where through Jesus, all of humanity will finally be at rest. All of humanity will never be cursed anymore. All of humanity can finally be at peace. Such an astounding statement. And it begs the question, how exactly is Jesus going to do that? How is he going to do this, this momentous, amazing fulfillment? Well, in order to answer that question, you first have to answer another question, okay? And what question is that? That leads me to my next point. Who Jesus came to have. Now, it is true that when you read verses 2 to 16, it does kind of read like a stale Phone book, and the temptation is is for you to read this, and you'd be like, "Man, this is ridiculous. I'm not going to read it. You just skip it, or worse, put down the book. You're not even going to engage it. But you know, there is a profound reason why Matthew started off his gospel with this genealogy. You see, Matthew is trying to teach us who Jesus came to have, who he came to have. Now, unless you know the Bible these names are going to be absolutely meaningless to you. They're going to be just like a bunch of random names that have no significance. But if you grew up going to church and you paid attention in your Bible story classes, these names will be familiar. And in fact, as you carefully read these names, you'll come to find that most of these names have something in common. All these names share, or excuse me, most of these names share a commonality. And what is that commonality? Most of the people named in this genealogy are absolute failures, absolute failures, okay? Failures of two kinds. They're either failures of character or failures of competency. Most of the names listed on this genealogy of Jesus are people who are moral failures or competent failures, people who have failed in some way, shape, and form. Let me show you an example of all this as we go through it. Take a look at verses 2 to 3. There you come across the name Judah. It's actually the name of my son, right? But we didn't name him Judah because of this story, okay, that I'm about to tell you. If you read in the Old Testament, Judah was the son of Jacob, one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And you know what Judah did? I hope to God my son never does this. But this Judah in particular, he slept with his own daughter-in-law, Tamar, right? Now, of course, he didn't know he was sleeping with his daughter-in-law because he thought that she was a prostitute. Yeah, even better, right? You go down to verse 5, you find a name, Rahab. Who is Rahab? Rahab is an actual prostitute. She is a real prostitute. She's a temple prostitute. That means she's a pagan worshiping prostitute. Oh, wow, not so nice. Go to verse 10, you come to the name Manasseh. Manasseh, who is Manasseh? He is hands down the most wicked, evil king that Israel has ever had. Take a listen to how 2 Kings 21 describes it. Can we have it up there, please? 2 Kings, not Genesis 12. There we go. Manasseh also murdered many innocent people until Jerusalem was filled from one end to the other with innocent blood. This was in addition to the sin that he caused the people of Judah to commit, leading them to do evil in the Lord's sight. Wow. Not so good, right? So clearly this list has people in it who are morally corrupt, who are moral failures. But then there are other people on this list Who may not be as wicked, who may not be as messed up or as perverted as the names that I've just mentioned, and yet they too are failures, but of a different kind. They failed in living out the purpose and the commission that God has called them to do. For example, verses 8 through 11, you come across names like Asaph, Jehoshaphat, Uzziah, Josiah, Hezekiah, right? Who are these names? They're names of some of the kings of Israel. But here's the thing, many of these kings, they were pretty good people. They were God-fearing people. They were kings who did remotely well as kings of Israel. But all of them have the commonality of ultimately failing when God needed them to succeed the most. Right? At some point in their reign as king, they fell into failure. Either they became corrupt as they grew in power. Either they died in battle because they were so egotistical and prideful. Or they just did some ridiculous, nonsensical, stupid things. Ultimately, all of these kings, even the kings of renown in the books of Chronicles, show us that they have failed when they needed to succeed the most. And so you put all this together, you easily see that most of these people on this list are absolute failures. Either they're moral failures or they're competent failures. They're incompetent failures. Now, at this time, you are probably wondering something if you've been paying attention. You probably have noticed me saying that most of the people on this list are failures, not all. Which would imply that there is a small group of people, a minority group if I can call them that, that don't fit that profile of the majority of being failures. And so the question is, what about the remainder people? Who are the people that are left who are not the categorical failures like the majority of the people on this list? Who are they? Well, they're scattered throughout the genealogies, but... Most of them are concentrated right at the very end of it, from verses 12 to 16, right before it speaks of the birth of Jesus, okay? And you find that these names have something in common themselves. What do they have in common? You know what it is? They're absolute nobodies. And when I say nobodies, I don't mean that in a derogatory way, like, oh, you're such a nobody. No, I literally mean they are nobodies. This is the only time in the entire Bible where you come across their name. Some of the most brilliant Bible scholars to this day are like, I have no idea who these people are. Never heard of them. There's no records of them in the Bible. There's no extra biblical accounts of them. We don't know who these people are. I mean, there are some exceptions like Mary, Joseph, Zerubbabel, Zadok, but the remainder, no one knows. They literally are nobodies, okay? Now, when you consider that fact and also add to it, the fact that most of them are concentrated right at the tail end of the genealogy, right before Jesus is born, what is Matthew telling us? You know what he's telling us? He's telling us that when you fail in life, not only do you have to deal with the consequences of your failures, but your children and their children have to suffer the consequences as well to where it will end up with them becoming nobodies. If you fail in life, not only do you doom yourself, Will you doom your progeny that comes after you into becoming the kinds of people that no one is ever going to stop and notice. Instead, they're going to be the kinds of people where they come across your progeny's name and they say, let's just skip it. Let's just go right by. Right? That's what happens when people fail either morally or in terms of competence. And this is something that as New Yorkers, we know very well. Do we not? Do we not? And yet, according to Matthew, That is who Jesus came to have. Those are the very same people that Jesus has come for when he came into this world. Listen, Jesus didn't come to bring blessings and peace to the rich, to the famous, to the beautiful, to the successful. No, he came to bring blessings and peace to those who are nobodies in this world. Why? Because it is the nobodies who don't have the blessings, they don't have the peace. You know what they have instead? They have curses, they have fears. The Bible tells us that when you sin, when you fail morally, you get the curse of God on you. The wrath of God is against you. In fact, some of the names that I mentioned to you, Judah, Tamar, they at one point did feel that God has cursed them. Okay? The Bible goes on to say that when you fail in the work that God has commissioned you to do... You suffer this rampage of fear all the time to where it's constantly haunting you. It's constantly weighing you down. In fact, some of the great kings that I mentioned to you also were haunted with this fear. So you see, Jesus came to bring peace and blessings to those very people. People who failed miserably in this life, both in their character, both in their competency. Those are the people Jesus came to have. Those are the people that Jesus wants to have as his people. Now when you understand that, when you grasp that, then and only then can you finally answer the final question, the most important question. How can Jesus do all this? This leads me to my final point, how Jesus did it all. Now obviously, Matthew ends his genealogy of Jesus by ending it with Jesus. Because that's what you do with genealogies. When you profile a person's genealogy, you end it with the person being profiled, namely Jesus. But it begs the question, Matthew, why are you risking beginning your book with a genealogy? Why do you risk, because let's be honest, you read this genealogy, right, with the exception of Julie reading it with her beautiful voice. If you're reading it, you're like, this is so boring, right? Right? Why risk beginning your book, Matthew, with something so boring to where people will be tempted to just be like, that's it, I'm done. You ever do that? You ever go to Barnes & Noble? You see a book on the shelf, you see a title, oh, that sounds interesting, or look at that cover, it's so pretty. Right? Those are the people who don't really read much, right? Like, oh, this is a pretty look, let's read it. You read the first couple of paragraphs, you're like, what is this? Done. Right? Matthew, why do you risk... Having people, like, end the book before they even start it by beginning it with such a boring genealogy. Believe it or not, it's because Jesus wants to show us how Jesus is going to bring universal peace and universal blessing. And you know how he's going to do it? He's going to do it by being on the bottom of the list. Let me explain. Remember, this is a list of Names of people who failed in life in their character, thereby being cursed, failed in terms of their competence, thereby being haunted with fear, right? And they suffer the consequences of that, and their children suffer the consequences of that to where they and their descendants become nobodies. Here's the question. Who is the last person that receives the brunt of all that curse, all the consequences of all those failures, who ends up being doomed to being the most forgotten people of all, person of all? Who is that person who receives the full weight of all of that? It's Jesus, right? It's Jesus. You see, Matthew is trying to show us through this seemingly boring genealogy the beautiful, amazing gospel. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that says God came into the world as Jesus Christ so that he could inherit all of the failures of all the nobodies, of all the morally impure, perverted, wicked, irresponsible failures of this world. In some ways, this genealogy is symbolic of the full weight of sin that Jesus carried as he went to the cross so that he could be the Savior of the world. And here's what's so amazing. If you read Luke's version of the genealogy, because Luke has his own version, it looks nothing like Matthew's. It's a completely different genealogy. Just read it. The names don't line up. Which means Matthew, when he wrote this genealogy, as he was making this theological point, he didn't include everyone on that list. What does that mean? It means Jesus is not only the Savior and the Redeemer of the people on this list. He can be the Savior of everyone who will look to him to be the inheritor of their sins. That means you, that means me, that means every single person that walks on this earth. See, the good news of the gospel is, is that Jesus is not only going to be the inheritor of the sins of the people of the Old Testament. He has come to inherit the sins of the whole world. So that through his work on the cross, as he pays fully for the sins of those who trusted him as the inheritor of, of his righteousness in return to where he inherits their sinfulness they become recipients of universal peace universal blessing that was prophesied so long ago in the days of the old testament listen not all of you in here are christians i get that but all of you in here myself included we're all failures are we not Let's be honest. Let's be brutally honest. You can imagine you're not, but you're only lying to yourself. The fact of the matter is we're all failures, which means all of us need Jesus in our lives. We need him to come and to inherit all that we have accrued upon ourselves in our failures, both morally, both in terms of our competency, our irresponsibility, our inability to be the kinds of men and women God called us to be the men and women that we desire to be, but can't. But that's where the good news of Christmas and the good news of the gospel is so precious to us. Because if you look to Jesus as your source of life, if you look to him as the purpose of your meaning of life, if you look to him as the center of your life, the meaning for your existence, you can finally receive the blessing and peace that you're working so hard right now to get for yourself, but you're feeling miserably in getting for yourself. So here's my challenge to you, NCF and our guest. Would you look at the real meaning of Christmas? Would you consider what Christmas is really all about and no longer be obscured about what it claims to be in accordance to our culture, but instead look at it into the way Matthew teaches us in the seemingly boring, irrelevant, insignificant genealogy? If you look carefully, if you look sincerely... You will find a God who is so good, so amazing, and so deeply loves you to where you will receive great joy and peace that will go far beyond after Christmas is over. Will you take that now and would you receive it now by making Jesus once again your Lord or making him your Lord for the first time? Let us pray. Father, I ask as we consider the significance of what this genealogy teaches us, Father, that we would not brush it off as being irrelevant, that we would not dismiss it as being boring and insignificant, but instead that we would leave this Christmas season with a deeper understanding and a deeper awareness of how beautifully glorious you are by your kindness and your mercies. Oh God, would you help us to really cling to the hope this season so that it would linger on for our generations to come. And Father, we ask that as we consider the love of God in Jesus, that we would be aware that we would be faithful and good in response to it. Help us to live faithfully, for we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, buddy. Well, obviously, as you can tell, we have a presentation for you as we do every holiday season. Our children want to bless us by giving us a very amusing but also lighthearted presentation of this holiday holiday season. So can we honor the Lord and bless our children by welcoming them as they give a presentation.
0: I believe there are some of our older children that had also practiced at home. Uh, So if you are one of them, please send them up to the front. I think some of them received the video. If they practiced and they know the song, they can come to the front and join their family or their friends here. No? Okay, everyone stand up. Stand up. Katie. Stand
1: up. <laughs> up. Up, 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 yeah. up, did Lifted from heaven to a manger. The hope I- Thank you, guys. At this time, let's continue to worship our God as we give our tithes and offerings. If you're visiting us for the first time, please do not feel obligated to give.